climate change is hurting the animals that we love. It's hurting the animals that we need. And um, we need to act faster and faster in reducing, reducing emissions across, you know, the whole world. And everybody needs to play their part in that. That's chair and founder of Australia's Vets for Climate Action, Janet Chessels. I met her on a webinar just recently. If you can call meeting someone on a webinar an actual meeting, that's where it happened. I suggested she join me on Climate Conversations, and without hesitation, she said yes. Welcome, this is the latest episode of Climate Conversations, and I am your host, Robert McLean. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in Northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Let's listen now to the conversation Jeanette and I had just a few days ago. Jeanette, can we just put you in a context for a moment, like where are you like physically in Australia? Um, sure. I'm um, from Queensland and I have a group of veterinary practices in Springfield, Ipswich, uh, which is just to the west of Brisbane. So I'm sitting on my deck uh, overlooking some trees, beautiful trees and the dog at my feet and life is good. <laughs> life is good. So why did you become a vet, Janet? Well, a little girl, we used to go camping a lot, just my family. We'd camp by this little creek. We had perfectly clear water that we could drink and we'd just swim in that water, bathe in there, um, you know, sit by a fire and eat food. And I really gained a love for nature there. And, um, uh, you know, we'd go bird watching. My parents were migrants, so they just thought it was fantastic. Uh, and I really developed a love for looking at things and observing birds and observing the little things. Um, it always made me happy hearing the bellbirds and all the different birds in that area. And then, of course, I really loved my dog. And then um, I liked caring for wildlife, you know, injured wildlife, anything that sort of came into my orbit. Um, and I, you know, liked raising the little baby ones and so on. And and I, I liked being around people, chatting with people, hearing their stories. Um, and I like working with my hands. And um, so being a, a job as a vet is really good for somebody like this that sort of is happy to interact with people, but also likes to work with their hands and quietly do surgery. So um, that's that's really how I became a veterinarian. And then by accident, really, um, I had a very small practice at home for 13 years and then uh, it sort of outgrew that. And uh, I now have a group of veterinary hospitals in Ipswich and we employ about 50 staff. So, so where did you study to become a vet? At Queensland University. So when did the climate crisis first cross your horizon? Well, really not very long ago, actually, because I was busy sort of raising my family, I was spending time with my children, I just sort of um, just doing my thing, I guess, doing my veterinary work. Um, um, so if you told me six years ago that I was going to be, you know, founding and chairing a, a significant not-for-profit involving vets and climate change, I would have absolutely fallen mm. over. 
probably only in the last 10 years that I've become more and more aware of the escalating climate change, perhaps even only six years, six or seven years. But once I understood the impacts of coal and gas on our climate, on, on of fossil fuels, I thought maybe I'd do some protesting, but I'm not really a very good protester. Um, and I think I'm probably more suited to quiet persuasion and uh, influencing. I'm not really a shouter. So, um, but there's great value in that. There's great value in people speaking mm. up, but not everybody's as strong in that area. So I thought perhaps my role could better be used to harness other people's energy and um, develop a group within our profession. So the the Vets for Climate Action is is a, is a nationwide organisation. So that's quite a bold step to yeah. take, isn't it, to try and to try and organise <laughs> something like that on a nationwide basis? So how did that all happen? Thank you. Well, I was involved in some protesting, and uh, I had the opportunity to meet some people from Farmers for Climate Action. And I was really intrigued by what they were doing. They've had a very strong influence on the on the climate of you know the the, the political landscape, really, in terms of their advocacy and then their influence. Um, through mobilising farmers, and I thought maybe I could help them, so I arranged a, a meeting to see where maybe I could do some work alongside them. And it was suggested to me that yeah, it would be great for vets and farmers to be able to share the same message and potentially work together. Um, and then someone said, well, why don't you set up a similar group for veterinarians? So that's kind of how that started. And then, um, so I just put a message. Facebook and a few people replied and said they'd be interested and then we held a bit of a brainstorm sort of round table at my house here cooked everybody some lunch and um, there was about 15 people from all around Australia came to share their ideas on why this might be important and that sort of started the foundation of this organization so we now have over 2,000 members and we're growing really? from all, all over um, Australia from all over Australia that's yeah. excellent yeah, and we work really closely with a group of retired um, or former chief veterinary officers and senior government veterinary officers. So they're a, a really valuable group to be associated with and um, uh, they've also become passionate about the impacts of climate change on animals and need to speak out. So a lot of our advocacy is done together with this group of retired former chief veterinary officers. Tell me about the goals you had for the organisation originally. Are they still still there, or? Well, originally it it was um, uh, we didn't really know. I suppose. I mean, when you start something, you never really know how it's going to end up. It usually ends up five degrees to the left or right of everything. <laughs> yeah. You know, so you, you kind of might have some ideas, but. It takes a lot of talking to different people and seeing what resources you have available and what, um, you, you know, um, who wants to do that to figure it out. Um, not so long after we had this idea, um, the fires happened and those fires were absolutely devastating for veterinary surgeons. Um, if you could imagine in my hospitals that if there's one pet that is sick and needs to be euthanised or dies, 
we'll light a candle, we'll put a little respectful something on the counter to say, please be quiet, somebody's just losing their pet. Sometimes I, I was a veterinarian practising for over 30 years. I would have shed a tear with pretty well every client that mm. their pet because I felt sad for them, you know. Even though that's the cycle of life, it's often a normal thing, but I, I would empathise with them and veterinarians are very empathetic. So if you could imagine then three billion animals, three billion. So that's my mother was 95 when she died and if she'd have spent one second for every animal that was either killed or displaced in those fires, it would have taken more than her entire life's lifespan on yeah. a that's just amazing, isn't it? By one second. So, just amazing. You can't get your head around that, can you? You, you can't actually get your head around how many animals that is and the absolute devastation of that. And I know that veterinarians have been extremely active in taking care of injured animals, and, you know, I really applaud that. Um, Vets for Climate Action sees the role as being putting the the, the fences up at the top of the cliff rather than, um, you know, the ambulance at the bottom. Being the ambulance at the bottom, yeah. So we're wanting to impact policy. We're wanting to make changes um, across the veterinary profession on our own emissions to make a tangible difference. We want to influence nationally and inter internationally what business is doing and how industry is responding to the climate crisis. I mean, as well as the fires that were talked about a lot, I mean, I've just been to Kangaroo Island and uh, a huge percentage of koalas died in those fires, you know, and it, and that place is still devastated in terms of mm. the large trees, you know, being hurt yeah. by fires. So, you know, records are made to be broken and um, that was a real wake-up call for us. But the other thing that happened was around about that time in 2019, prior to the fires, um, in the Northern Territory, there'd been a big drought. Um, and so the cattle were uh, uh, lean and, um, uh, you know, uh, they, they didn't have quite enough. And then there was an extreme weather event, which is climate change. You know, climate change isn't just um, temperatures increasing by one degree. I mean, we can all just deal with that. It's the extremes of hot and cold that go with Mm. that impact our animals and so these um these beef cattle um then experienced an extreme rainfall event and 600,000 head of cattle perished in those floods those that didn't die of drowning died of exposure to cold Mm, really, gee. They were set up that way because they were in drought prior to that. So these extreme weather events are going to have huge impacts on our wildlife, but also on livestock, and um, you know, also also economically. That's you know, for those farmers, that's a that's a horrendous experience for them to have to go through. So. Yeah, it's been really comprehensive, Jeanette. You've answered lots of my questions. Mm. Tell me, is it you mentioned? There's there's more to the climate crisis than just heat. Yes. Obviously, animals coming out of drought end up in heavy rain. They're also in trouble, aren't they? So yes, I mean, I mean, uh, we think of the climate crisis in terms of um, of the actual weather. I guess. Um, you know, extremes of drought, extremes of flood, extremes of temperature. I mean, if you imagine 
that, um, you know, a lot of these male animals have low-hanging testicles um, and fertility is associated with heat, um, you know, very hot, mm. are, are going to be problematic in certain areas for male fertility uh, at least. Um, so, you know, we, you know, extremes of heat, extremes of cold in some areas, extremes of rainfall, bushfire risk is inc- incredibly increased. You know, we have a far greater mm. fire risk than what we did 50 years ago. Um, so these are all, you know, factors that can compound together to cause a, a very big problem. But from a veterinary perspective, we look at animal welfare. So our job is to care for animals and for their welfare and ensure their welfare. The the climate crisis is, I mean, we've seen that with those 600,000 cattle and the and the billions of animals burned alive in fires. That's an animal welfare issue. So, you know, veterinarians are responsible for animal welfare but we're also responsible for biosecurity so if you could imagine that um, a disease such as Japanese encephalitis which occurs in both humans and animals um, it's only ever been seen in the Torres Strait until recently now in the last couple of years it was seen in South Australia so I had a, a pig veterinarian speak with me and they were having um, herds of pigs with reduced um, fertility, um, stillbirths and abortions increased um, as a result of this Japanese encephalitis going through their pigs. Um, so these are diseases that we don't normally see down south. Veterinarians are concerned about diseases such as lumpy skin disease, which haven't been in Australia before, and African horse sickness, because the vectors, the you know the bugs that carry these, are like a hot temperature, and so as mm, it's warmer mm. and the warmer temperatures go south, it becomes easy for these diseases to come into Australia. So it's it's biosecurity. It's also about one health. So what are the diseases that both animals and humans suffer with? You know, one example would be encephalitis. Diseases such as rabies, for example. I'm not drawing a bow on, on, on rabies, but those are diseases that impact both humans and animals. Parasites. I was going to ask you, you're obviously your primary, your primary responsibility is the animals you care for, but no doubt you would also be involved with lots and lots of humans so you have people to worry about as well wouldn't you well we know that when floods happen people are very concerned about their animals when fires happened they're very you know what are they going to do with their horses what are they how what's going to be their escape route for their pets you know these are all things that i guess we're involved with as well yeah if i could just um expand on that also extinctions of animals you know um, that, that that's also we've had our um, first mammalian extinction directly as a result of climate change. You know, veterinarians in zoos are very involved in working with species that are under threat. So that's another area where veterinarians are involved. So what what is the single biggest challenge for vets with regard to climate crisis that you can see? Well, it's really, really important that we... Um, keep up our hope, I suppose. It's very easy for us to experience suffering of animals um, and feel hopeless that there's nothing that we can do. But in fact, there's a lot that we can and that we are going to do. 
um, to make a difference and to limit warming. Um, you know, veterinarians have got a primary role to make a difference. And I'd really love to tell you more about what Vets for Climate Action is going to do um, in order to to um, contribute to solving this problem. That's a it's a problem across every sector. It's across every family. It's across um, every nation, every state, uh, every corporation, every government is going to have to deal with this. So veterinarians as respected, loved, trusted, scientific people have got a great deal of um, capacity really to uh, be a part of this conversation and to advocate for more rapid change and more reduction, rapid reduction in emissions. I was impressed to notice that Professor Mark Howden was on your board. Yeah. That's a bit of a coup, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, we feel really honoured to have Professor Mark Howden. Um, he um, is, a, a, is a group Nobel recipient um, and the director of the Climate Institute um, Mark is, has got a great way of, um, of making complex things simple to understand. He did a, a seminar for us last night, which your listeners might like to listen to. Um, uh, you, you might be able to provide the link to, the, to that once it becomes available. I certainly will. Yeah, certainly will. yeah. Um, and, and that comes from one of the most educated people on the planet, in this series. So we're very honoured to have Mark. We also have um, Helen Scott Orr, who was Chief Veterinarian of New South Wales and um, uh, very involved in biosecurity for the Commonwealth um, and uh, a number of other people on our board that, that are very wise and experienced in uh, shaping our organisation. Jeanette, where do you think we're headed with, with regard to the climate crisis, in particular, I suppose, with the animals you care for? Well, I think we're in a lot of trouble. Um, you, you know, we're already sitting at 1.2 degrees above um, pre-industrial levels and the trajectory that we're at at the moment is over three degrees, which would be catastrophic for our animals. However, in my experience over these last three to four years having established vets for climate action, what I see is an enormous amount of goodwill. I'm seeing people who want to do things but are not quite sure what it is that they need to do. Um, and I feel that we, we can't look away. We must do everything that we can to create a better world for our children, the generations to follow and for all of our animals. So the animals of the world are relying on us to make an impact on the climate crisis. I'd love to tell you specifically what Vets for Climate Action is doing. Would that be? Yeah, go for your would, life. Yeah, that'd be great. Robert, yeah. Yeah, yeah do that. So, so we have a, we've had a, an absolutely fantastic um, CEO, um Tara, who's put together a strategic plan uh, with a very um, detailed operational plan that sits under this. Um, we have three main pillars in our strategic plan. The first is education. So when we're talking about education, we want to be educating our profession. We want to shift the whole culture of the profession. 
So 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, nobody was really talking about mental health in our profession. This was something that nobody really understood. It wasn't something that was talked about. Gradually, that's become normalised. We never go to a conference without learning more about mental health in our profession. I don't, you know, my staff don't do rosters without considering mental health. Everything we do, we think about mental health. So shifting our um, profession um, and what our profession's thinking about, so it's not just about the finance, not just about running business, it's also about the people, which is what we've started to do well, and now it needs to be the planet. So the triple P, people, planet and profit, those three need to be. <laughs> yeah, nice. so shifting the veterinary profession so we, you know, we attend conferences, we have um, speakers at conferences, we have seminars such as the one that we had last night, which all of the public, you know, all of your listeners would be very welcome to attend. Um, we also are working with the universities to introduce climate change across the curriculum. So the veterinary curriculum is very broad. It might include physiology. Well, what's going to happen to animals with extreme heat? How's that going to impact live exports, for example? Um, you know, how's that going to impact horse racing? Um, you know, when we've got increased temperatures that, you know, are going to impact our horses. How's that going to impact the breeds that we select um, of dogs, the breeds that, you know, currently very popular, the short-nosed brachycephalic breeds like the bulldog? They don't in the way that some other dogs might. So, you know, also veterinarians learn about nutrition, they learn about reproduction and climate changes across, you know, impacts all of these areas. So, so the universities are starting now to look at where climate change can be introduced across the curriculum. Another part of our education, which is what we're probably most proud of, is the climate care program. So this is um, a program of six modules that's been developed by a very active group of volunteers over the last three years. The modules include energy use, water use, renewables, um, uh, procurement, chemical use, and so on. And practices have a climate champion uh, appointed and that climate champion is there to deliver the climate care program to the practice. So in my hospitals, for example, we've reduced water use by one third just by joining. Oh, really? That's pretty impressive. So we don't know of any other professions or industries that are doing this bottom up in this way. Um, and we feel that that it's something that over time we could share. You know, imagine if every physio practice or every pharmacy or every doctor's practice had the climate care program, you know, so developing that's been an enormous amount of work for our staff. Um, it's been done really, really well. Um, you know, it boggles my mind what they've done. Um, and that's gradually being launched into the veterinary community. So that's a big part of what, you know, the climate care, um, a really important part of our work. And there's also an educational component with that. Ultimately, of course, every veterinary business, every family, every other business, government, corporation, country needs to get to carbon neutral. It actually has to happen before, to net zero, it has to happen before, before 2050. 2050 is too late. So there is a... It's too late, isn't it? Yep. So there is a carbon neutral practice already in Victoria, and I'm hoping... Oh, is there? Yeah. 
Mm. We'll be the second in Australia to be carbon neutral. And then we normalise that and go, well, you know, let's um, let's normalise normalize for small businesses to become carbon neutral and let's, um, you know, make that a really cool thing for, for people to aspire to. It makes everybody feel better doing something. And, it, and if we all do it, that actually will make a really tangible impact. So that's the education component. Um, secondly, our second pillar is collaboration. So we have a strong desire to collaborate with other like-minded organisations, whether that's Farmers for Climate Action, whether it's the Australian Veterinary Association, whether it's other veterinary associations around the world, uh, whether it's animal care and welfare organisations. So over time, we're wanting to collaborate with a lot of different organisations to get this message out. Climate change is hurting the animals that we love. It's hurting the animals that we need. And um, we need to act faster and faster in reducing reducing emissions across, you know, the whole world. Uh, and everybody needs to play their part in that. And then our third pillar is, um, so if any listeners are wanting to collaborate, um, please be in touch. And then our third pillar is um, that of acting as trusted advisors. We feel that we are really deeply embedded in the rural community, um, the urban and, and semi-rural community, every everybody, you know, Prime Minister Albanese has a dog that he loves. You know, every political party, um, people love animals and want to act on their behalf. So a lot of this is to do with understanding how important and how urgent this is. And I feel that um, we're in a really good position to share that message. So, yeah, I think our role as trusted advisors and scientists, we have no desire to be um, uh, specifically political. We are apolitical. However, we will call out policies that we're not happy with on behalf of the animals that we're responsible for. So if a policy isn't okay, we'll speak about it very strongly, but we going to um, align ourselves with a particular party. And I think that's a really, you know, uh, that's a, a, um, that's a, a good way for us all to, you know, to be. It's about the policies. Are you being listened to by politicians? Uh, yes, for sure. I um, am in Milton Dick's electorate, electorate and he's come to personally uh, visit me. We've had a number of discussions about it and he's made introductions. We've also we've met with Maureen Faruqi uh, uh, in the Greens um, and we have a number of um, uh, meetings coming up across the, the the political spectrum. So, and we've had a lot of other meetings previously. I couldn't list them all. <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. So, it's wonderful. Yeah. So, so you know, there's certainly a lot of movement occurring there. We do rely on volunteers, and, and we rely on on donations to keep our work going, because obviously we need to employ staff to do this work. Um, there's a vet shortage and, you know, vets are very limited for time. They're needed on the ground looking after animals. So, you know, we've had the privilege to have been given some money um, to allow us to do a lot of this work, but we, we do need um, more to keep it going. And, and that also takes a lot of our time to ensure that we stay solvent and um, uh, growing. 
That's wonderful. I appreciate the chance to talk with you. It's been great. Oh, it's really enjoyed speaking with you, Robert, very much. Yes, thank you so much, Jeanette. It was just wonderful to have a chat with you about Vets for Climate Action. And you'll find a link for the organisation in the show notes. And you'll also find a link for the webinar at which I met Jeanette, the webinar at which featured Professor Mark Halden. Yes, we've reached the end of this episode. So until we talk again, I urge you all to take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And please, I want to know what you think about this podcast and what you think I should be doing, who I should be talking to, what stories I should be pursuing. So you can contact me via email at adultmclean7 at icloud.com. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with your friends. In fact, I implore you to share it with your friends because we all need to know all we possibly can about the climate crisis and how some people are dealing with it. And please follow this podcast because if you do that, you'll be automatically alerted every time I publish a new episode. Again, thanks, Jeanette. It was wonderful. Now take care.